Hey, what's up and welcome back, storytellers. This is your host, Yin Chang. Before we get into introductions about today's episode featuring Kekla Magoon, a quick announcement that we have a very special bonus of write-ins for this month. We've got storytellers working on manuscripts, TV scripts, treatments, plays, and so much more. And the best part is we're surrounded by each other's creative energy and are so motivated knowing that everyone is getting work done. I like to think of it as a virtual creative co-working space where you can write your stories from the comfort of your own homes in your PJs with all of your favorite snacks and beverages. Our participants have been killing it with their work in progress and they're always so pumped about our next write-ins because they know they're actually making progress with their work. And it's an absolute understatement when I say that I am so dang proud of each and every one of them for showing up and doing the work. I normally hold live stream write-ins once a month for an hour, but in March, we are having three different write-ins for two hours at a time. These live streams were created to help keep you accountable and productive with your writing, and they're exclusively accessible for our Patreon family in the green tea tier and higher as a thank you for supporting our show. Please pay special attention to the time zones. The first write-in is this Saturday, March 7th from 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our second write-in is happening immediately the next night on Sunday, March 8th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And the third and final write-in of the month is on Monday, March 9th, from 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. In case you did not know, this also comes with early access to our extended conversations with guests like Akemi Don Bowman and Linda Camacho from Galt and Zacher Literary Agency. Over the next several weeks, we're uploading the early extended interviews featuring Molly O'Neill from Root Literary, Marie Rutkowski, Stacey Lee, Samir Ahmed, Sarah Zar, Daniel Jose Older, and more. You also get access to all the extended conversations from our archive and the Patreon-exclusive video playback of my interviews with Mindy McInnes and Shannon Messenger, where we talked about publishing, marketing, money, and so much more. To join us, head over to patreon.com slash 88 cups of tea and sign up for the green tea tier or higher. Can't wait to see you there. For today's episode, I want to thank our friends at Vermont College of Fine Arts for supporting our work as the go-to community for storytellers. We teamed up with VCFA's MFA in Writing for Children and Young Adults, and we created a thoughtfully curated series of podcast episodes and personal essays to provide you with as much value as possible to help you along your writing journey. Over the last year, the alumni and faculty from VCFA's MFA in writing programs have been sharing their most intimate stories about the life of a writer from topics exploring the art and the heart of writing to overcoming imposter syndrome and breaking out of creative blocks to actionable step-by-steps on improving your craft. These stories will guide and uplift every storyteller in our community and they've already been resonating deeply with so many of our storytellers. So if you haven't had the chance to check out our series yet, be sure to head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash category slash VCFA and read the newest articles written by Ann Jacobus and Emily Christie Burek, where they unpack mental health, creativity, and craft advice. 
Head over to vcfa.edu to learn more about Vermont College of Fine Arts. We have award-winning author Kekla Magoon in today's episode. She published over a dozen novels for children and young adults, including The Season of Sticks Malone, The Rock and the River, How It Went Down, Light It Up, and X A Novel. She received an NAACP Image Award, three Coretta Scott King Honors, the Walter Dean Myers Award Honor. She's been long listed for the National Book Awards, among many more accolades. Kekla holds an MFA in writing from Vermont College of Fine Arts, where she now serves on faculty. In our conversation, Kekla and I jump right in and talk about her love for stories and how being absorbed into a narrative can help you make better sense of the world around you and bring you comfort in times of uncertainty. We dive into her career path to becoming an author and how she discovered Vermont College of Fine Arts, where she got her MFA. She shares her childhood experience and discovering her identity, which influenced her passion for acknowledging the gray areas, the reality of racial bias, and cognitive dissonance in her writing. Later, we dive deeper into her experience at VCFA and how the MFA program helped evolve her writing, grew her reading and critiquing skills, and provided her with a supportive writing community. We wrap up our conversation by discussing how to be compassionate towards yourself during writing setbacks. This is especially important for those of you who've been sharing in our private Facebook group that you've been feeling particularly down and stuck with your writing. So please pay special attention to that part towards the end. And Kekla also shares generous tips to help you move past moments of frustration and also shares advice for crafting your characters in the first person. She created an exclusive writing prompt just for you, and you can download this bonus content over on her show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash kekla-magoon. Now let's dive right in. Kekla, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm so good. So why don't we kick it off with how you first fell in love with writing? Well, I think I first fell in love with writing through reading. As a kid, I loved to read. My mom took me to the library every week and, you know, I would carry as many paperbacks as I could carry and, you know, checked them out and then didn't finish them and checked them out again the next week and brought them home. So I've always been surrounded by words and stories. And I've always loved that idea that you can take words on a page and create a whole world, create a place that you can escape into. And so as a as a reader, as a kid, I loved that sense of escape and that sense of sort of being absorbed by a narrative. And as a writer on the other side, I enjoy the idea that I can create that kind of experience for someone else, that experience that I love. And I write books for children and young adults. So the idea that I can create that experience for somebody who's also forming their identity, who's also forming a sense of who they are in the world and and looking for that escape and looking for friends, looking for, you know, a way to understand the world better. And those are reasons that I read. And those have become the reasons that I write. I didn't write a lot as a kid, but I think I made up stories in my head. (laughs) And as a young adult, right out of college, I turned to storytelling as a way of sort of bringing myself comfort in times of uncertainty. That moment where something snaps in us, where we realize, oh, this could be a career or this could be something that I can pursue. When was that moment for you? I always find that very fascinating. 
It was definitely after college. So I graduated from college in the summer of 2001, and I moved to New York in the fall of 2001, <laughs> specifically about the 9th of September. Oh, wow. And so it was, you know, this sort of, I am going to the big city, I'm going to have a grand adventure. <laughs> and then it became something very, very different from that as an introduction to, you know, life as an adult in the city because of September 11th, 2001. And so mm-hmm. in that time, when I sort of thought I was going out and seeing the city, right, it wasn't, it wasn't the time for that. It was the time to sort of sit in your apartment and be confused about the world. And so in that time and space, when I didn't really know anyone, I didn't have any friends yet in the city and I didn't have a job yet in the city because that was one of the things I was trying to do when I first got there. It was a time of, you know, great uncertainty and loneliness. And so I found myself not even reading so much as writing and just like sort of writing stories, writing fantasy, writing picture books, writing, you know, realistic historical fiction, (laughs) writing all these different kinds of things, as I think, like I said, a way of comforting myself in this time of uncertainty, and as as a way of trying to Mm. do something productive (laughs) in the face of, you know, sort of the inability to make a difference. Out of that, it just felt like, oh, this is a time when I'm having fun, I'm exploring, like, yay, I'm writing these stories. Um, I did get a job, I was working in nonprofit youth development at the time. And, you know, I would go do my job. And then I would like run home to write my stories. And then I would go to my job and I would run home to write my stories. And I, you know, sort of like every job that I had for those first couple of years in the city, I was like rushing home to, (laughs) to write my stories. And I sort of started to feel like, oh, actually, I'm spending as much time writing as I am doing my actual job, maybe it's something I should actually pay attention to, right? It's not just a side thing. It's not just this game or this, you know, pleasure or this comfort thing. It's actually something that I feel really passionate about. It's something I want to be more a part of my life. And so that's actually how I ended up (laughs) discovering Vermont College of Fine Arts, VCFA, because I started looking online for course, like writing courses I could take in Manhattan. And I was looking at like Gotham Writers Workshop and like various other things. And a friend of my mother's who is a children's writer, who's actually a well-known children's writer, um, Helen Frost, read some of my work and was like, oh, like, because I didn't know I was a children's writer. I just was writing. <laughs> she, she said, she said, oh, you know, the, what you're writing is actually children's literature. You should look at the Society for Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, SCBWI. And so I I was on the SCBWI website, and there was a banner ad on the side of SCBWI website advertising the Fall Foliage Literary Festival at Vermont College of Fine Arts. And it was just a weekend getaway with writers. And some of the faculty was going to be there, including Norma Fox Mazur, who is a well-known Newbery Award-winning author of young adult literature who I had read growing up. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can go to Vermont where there are trees and I can meet Norma Fox Mazur and it will be amazing. And so that was my first sort of foray into writing for children and young adults was to attend that weekend workshop. And as soon as I got there, I was like, this is this is where I need to be. This is what I need to be doing. What, how can I change my whole life? (laughs) I'm going to backtrack even more. Now let's rewind all the way back. Like growing up, you mentioned you were in the Midwest. You grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. What was that like growing up in your town? Any like stories that you remember that were like, wait, what? (laughs) In some ways, I feel like I still want to get more of those stories. Like I feel like if you have grandparents, which I did for a little while, but not as long as, you know, I would have liked, you sort of don't necessarily realize like the wealth of knowledge and the wealth of stories that's there until you're a little bit older. And then you're like, oh man, there's all these things I should have asked, right? Like sort of some of that. So I feel like when I was a kid, I mean, I was definitely very aware of being biracial. My dad is from Cameroon. My mom is white American with Dutch and Scottish heritage. And 
you know, so I definitely feel like my childhood was sort of defined by that experience of being of being biracial, but not necessarily knowing all of what that meant or even being able to talk about all of what that meant. I mean, it was just sort of a very normal thing to me. And there weren't always a lot of stories about you know, our background and where we had come from. And, you know, and part of that was, you know, it was the 80s and early 90s. And like that in that moment in time, I feel like there was more of an emphasis on kind of assimilation, like you're not different, you're American, just like everybody else. Like that was what we were sort of raised to believe. And so that, you know, created a certain amount of cognitive dissonance (laughs) in terms of my developing an identity as a Black American versus, you know, feeling like, oh, I'm just like all these other white kids that I'm growing up with, right? And so I feel sort of both of those things at the same time in terms of like, as a kid, I'd never really felt that different from my friends, even though I knew intellectually that I had this different thing about me, (laughs) which was, you know, my skin and my background. But that wasn't really part of my day-to-day experience as a kid. And so as I got older, it definitely became more a part of my experience, partly because I wanted it to be, like I wanted to understand this identity. And also the more they teach about the civil rights movement and how, yay, everybody linked arms and saying we shall overcome and now we have equality, but I'm still being teased for my Afro, like, you know, like that, Mm. like that didn't totally sit well and didn't totally make sense to me. And I think it's part of why I was interested in studying history to try to understand people are saying the world is one way. I don't feel that the world is actually that way. Let me try to understand this better. And I think that we're doing a much better job in in our culture right now in this moment in time, not a pristine job, but a much better job (laughs) of talking about the realities of racial bias and and culture and the impact of, of culture as opposed to when I was growing up, when there really was this emphasis on, you know, it's all a melting pot, we're all the same, hooray, multiculturalism, but also equality. And I'm much more engaged in a dialogue about sort of my identity now than I feel like I was as a kid. Okay, so this you brought up so much from this. (laughs) You know, you mentioned like you started to connect more with diving into understanding the realities of racial bias. So do you think looking back on it now, had you wished your parents had a different approach? Yeah. The thing is, it wasn't just like my parents. It was also the culture as a whole. Like I grew up like the schools that I went to, you know, it was like, everybody's equal. We're all we shall overcome like that. You know, I felt steeped in a culture (laughs) that was telling me that everyone is the same. And so like, this isn't a thing you have to worry about. And then like these little things would happen that would be like, oh no, that's because you're black. Oh, that's because you're black. Oh, that's because you're like, like, and then you're kind of like, wait, but both of these things can't be true. It can't be true that this culture believes that I'm equal, but won't give me these specific opportunities. Like, you know, I won't get cast in the play as the romantic lead because the romantic male lead is white. Like, you know, like that's not going to happen in this community. And it's like, oh, so I was better than the woman that was the, you know, young woman that was cast. And I I knew I was better. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) You know, like I was better at that. You deserve that Oscar. I tell you. Exactly. (laughs) You know, and so to see that happen and to know that, oh, this isn't, it's not, this is not a meritocracy, right? It's not just, I can do, it's not about just how well I can sing to be the lead in this community theater production, right? It's also that I have to look a certain way. There's no amount of good my singing could have been right that would have gotten me that role and that is very demoralizing and so like things like that and so it's like how can you tell me exactly (laughs) that we're all equal how Mm -hmm. can you tell me that everything is fine but I can't get you know like I can't actually do certain things like that like that tension that I recall feeling as like a middle school and high school person was very frustrating because I felt like the whole landscape around me was sort of denying that to be the case and I don't think that that's true anymore I think that kids who are growing up now in many cases have a little bit more perspective on that and a little bit more understanding about 
how the world works really and that we're trying still trying very hard to <laughs> to overturn some of that and so i feel that sense of progress in the culture and the conversation certainly not in, in every corner of the nation but like in many corners so i feel happy to see that progress happening i also wish i my teachers would have been able to have those conversations when i was at the age to benefit from them and so i do think that's part of why i want to write the type of books that i write for the audience that I write for to be able to continue to acknowledge those gray areas and to continue to acknowledge when I keep coming back to this phrase of cognitive dissonance, right? This idea that yes, we're all equal, but we're, we don't treat each other that way, right? Like, and existing with those two pieces of knowledge at the same time and how they sort of are both, they sort of are both true, but also not true. And, you know, there's a lot of stress, I think, for everybody, but particularly for people who are not white. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there is just complications to that. I think I was exploring entirely on my own, yes. you know, until college, basically, and found out that then there were other people like me, which I did not experience growing up. And so I think that I would have been able to, you know, sort of connect better if I had figured out how to have those conversations and who to have them with. But I'm not sure there was really anyone to have them right. with in the particular community that I grew up in. It's just so eye-opening for me to see the work that you do today is just, it comes from a very deep place of righting a lot of wrongs from what I'm understanding, seeing all the, the stories that we did not have growing up. Were there specific books? Do you remember thinking, man, I wish they would have a story like this for us. It could be even like a rom-com kind of book or like, a, you know what I mean? Where it's like, oh, I'm the sidekick again. Like that's how I see the books. You know what yeah. I mean? But the, you're not aware of it till you're older. Yeah. Because <laughs> then it's so, it's so normalized because the books you think, oh, well, that's the way it is because it's written in a book. I mean, I don't remember, I don't remember feeling that lack in the moment, you know, the lack of black characters represented in the moment as I feel now looking back. Because at the time, it was just like, well, these are the books, so this is what I read. You know, and it's, it is possible to find connection with characters who don't look like you. And had I been able to read a book about a biracial girl who was teased for her hair and stuff, like that probably would have been very resonant. But I didn't know to look for that. Like, I didn't know that was something that I wanted. I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have known to crave that, if that makes sense. I don't think I knew, but I, I would have liked to have seen it <laughs> now in retrospect. I do remember reading the Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, um, which was one of the first books I read that had uh, that starred entirely black characters. And that's one of the books I think about now in terms of my own work, especially when I'm doing historical fiction. If I can make a reader feel about my book the way I felt about that book when I first read it, that would be a huge victory to me because I loved that book and it meant a lot to me at the time. And I don't have to talk about To Kill a Mockingbird, but like that book was like sort of like, like I didn't totally connect with that book in the way that everybody seemed to think that I should. And, and I think there's a number of reasons for it now. I have context for it now as an adult in terms of the way that it's a white savior narrative, et cetera, et cetera. But I had read To Kill a Mockingbird and then I read Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. And I was like, no, 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 this, this is the book. Like, this is the stuff, you know? <laughs> so Roll of Thunder is a, by Mildred D. Taylor and it's a historical book about a black family in the segregated South. Um, and it's an incredibly powerful story for readers of any age, but it is a young adult book. And remembering that experience, I also remember like being really excited when Jesse, the black babysitter in the babysitter's club <laughs> was introduced and like, you know, seeing romantic comedies, even in film starring black couples, like was exciting, like in a different way. Like I just, I, I was aware of that as something that needed to happen, but it not quite as much. Like, I don't think 
think I was quite as aware of it as a problem at the time as I am now. Oh, wow. And that's why you do the work you do today. Yep, definitely part of it. Yeah, exactly. Do you mind if we segue now into the writing aspect of the work that you've been doing and just hearing people mentioning that you are just an incredible person to have as a mentor around them? (laughs) You taught Ali Condi, am I correct? Yeah, she was a student at Vermont College of Fine Arts. Yes, she spoke very highly of you in her episode. And yeah, she mentioned you in her episode saying that you were her teacher and that she learned so much from you really spoke about you in high regard. So, I mean, clearly you have such an impact on writers all around beginner and like multi-published, which is incredible, just to Mm -hmm. say like the skills and also the experiences that you have. Now, jumping back into school in Vermont College of Fine Arts, you did the workshop that one weekend that you found out through SCBWI. And then we're like, okay, I'm ready to make that dive. What was that like? I mean, just being a part of the schooling, how you felt your writing evolved, and even maybe your perspective in how to see work and give feedback, receive feedback. I mean, it it was definitely a life-changing experience on a number of levels, just to be part of a community of people who were really passionate about the same thing I was passionate about, which is writing and telling stories in this particular way. I mean, we were all very different people, but we were able to talk and connect on a level that I hadn't connected with people before because of that common drive to write, that common drive to tell these stories and capture these narratives and share them with young readers in particular. In terms of learning to, and developing my critique, it's, it's really kind of fascinating to me to think about I have a couple of, of different threads to bring up. One is just this idea that people enter a master's program like the one at Vermont College, like people enter the program from such different places. When I entered the program, I knew basically nothing about writing in terms of, you know, no craft terms. Like people were all running around talking about show, don't tell. I had no idea what they were talking about. Like, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know any of the things, like none of the catchphrases, none of the buzzwords, none of the language. I didn't have, I didn't have vocabulary for critique, let alone the ability to critique it. I mean, I think in my first workshop I went in and it was like, I think you're missing a comma on page four. I mean, like that, (laughs) that was the kind of thing that I knew because I was just like, my experience up till that point had been, you put a book in front of me, I read it okay, that was the book. Like, you know, I didn't have that experience of picking anything apart and really learning and how to how to do that. And so in the conversation, what you just shared about, you know, like Ali Condi <laughs> um, talking about me as a teacher, you know, she came into the program from a very, very different place. Like she was already a bestselling author with Trilogy and other books published. And she, you know, like she was a very successful by any measure published person when she entered the program. But still, there's things to learn, right? Because there's always things to learn about writing. And there's always, we're always developing our craft. I still now am developing my craft, right? 12 novels later. <laughs> but just to think about how I could enter the program in like 2003, <laughs> knowing absolutely nothing about craft, and, you know, sort of escalating to the point where 15 or so years later, I'm able to offer something to someone who's already a best-selling novelist, right? Like that arc to me is really (laughs) powerful and fascinating. And I think it doesn't like specifically speak to me being like so much better now, but but it speaks to the way that we are all constantly growing and developing and that the fact that I had something to offer Ali, right? Because I learned a lot from her as well, right? I mean, like, it's like this sort of give and take of like, what does it, what does it mean to look at somebody's work and really analyze it and study it? And what do I learn about my craft from that? And what do I offer that person about their craft? And like that exchange is really powerful sort of at any stage of the development. I mean, part of why I continue to teach is that, you know, I feel like I learn so much and I improve my own craft by being part of the community. 
But I think that the specific way that I participated in workshops and um, continued to do manuscript exchanges and critiques with VCFA alums after I graduated really helped me become someone who could read and critique really well to go from zero to 60, so to speak, right? Um, In terms of being able to, you know, fix your commas to all the way to be able to like, no, I think you need to rethink the premise of this whole thing because there's a seed in there, right? (laughs) Or something different. And I think that's what your story is really trying to be. (laughs) You know, that kind of development. That kind of mastery for sure. Yeah, I feel like it it was a longer trajectory than just the two years in the program, but that the two years in the program like started me on the particular path of being able to do that. And they gave me the skills that I needed to be able to build and build and build and build and keep building even beyond their reach, which is what, you know, what you want to do as a teacher, right? You want somebody to come in knowing nothing and be able to, you know, send them on a path where they're just going to keep learning for the rest of their life and keep getting better for the rest of their life. And so I feel like I benefited from that. And now I try to give it back. Pass that on. Yeah, I can see that. Do you have any experiences community-based that you can share with us? Yeah. The cool thing about the alumnix community is that it just keeps growing and growing and growing. So I can go to pretty much any major city in the country and be like, who lives here? <laughs> like, Who's taking me out to lunch kind of thing? And it doesn't always work out to do that. Like I just visited a city where uh, an alum lives and they messaged me and I didn't get a chance to meet them and stuff. So like it's, you know, the, but there's those opportunities exist, right? And so that's a really beneficial, especially if you're on a book tour and you go to San Francisco and suddenly there's 20 people in the audience that where you might have other, only had three, right? <laughs> Authors know you do a bookstore event and sometimes there's three people and sometimes there's one person. <laughs> and if you're lucky, you get 10 or 15 sometimes, right? Unless you're a really huge name. And so... So we do that kind of thing for each other, like showing up to support each other at the at local events, trying to continue the community. And, you know, and it just keeps growing and growing because there's new graduates every semester. I feel like one of the stories that I tell <laughs> that I find humorous <laughs> about, you know, my my classmates, right? So the, the cohort that I went through the program with, they live all over the country because we're a low residency program. And so everybody comes to Vermont twice a year in January and July for two week residencies. And I felt, you know, those times are just these really intense connections. You know, you're having these really deep conversations about craft and you're on a different level, like, but you're not talking about the kinds of stuff you talk about normally. Like you're not talking about where people live. You're not talking about their kids. You're not talking about like what they do for a, a day job. You know, you're not talking about what kind of house they live in. Like there's all these things that I know about my personal friends that I don't know about my writer friends. And so, you know, I'll forever be thinking of someone, oh yeah, like that person from my class, like where do they live again? Or like, wait, I think they had a day job. What was it again? Like, I can't remember. <laughs> and it it tends to be intense conversations about writing. We're having these intense conversations about like our feelings and our what we put into our work and like where that comes from. And it's all this deep stuff. And I forget where, they, where they're from or how many kids they have. And, and it's so strange to me because when people ask me about, you know, my classmates, I'll be like, yeah, so-and-so. And they'll be like, oh yeah, where do they live? And I'll be like, I have no idea. <laughs> I can't tell you where they live. I can't tell you if they're married or and to whom. I can't tell you if they have kids, but I can tell you their deepest fear. <laughs> I can tell you all about their relationship with their father. Like, you know, like, because that's the stuff that comes out in the work. And so to me, it's kind of an interesting community because we sort of skip over some of the like basic intro stuff. Yeah, yeah. And you get straight to the deep stuff. Yes. <laughs> that to me says something really interesting um, about the sort of power of the type of community that a writing community can be. Oh my gosh, I love that so much. Well, how does it feel living in Vermont? Oh, I like it here. Yeah, I like it here. It's very quiet. I travel a ton, so it's not a populated place that I live. It's a town of 8,000, but I feel like I am seeing 
the world, uh, you know, or at least the country still. And I, 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 you know, it, it, people are always like, how, how can you live in such a small town? And I'm like, well, that, you know, it doesn't feel so weird if you get to go everywhere all the time. And frankly, like lately I've been trying to travel less just to be here more. It's, it's a really nice place to write. I have a little hammock in my backyard in the summer and I have a porch and I have, you know, a view of the woods and I can walk to downtown where we have a, a surprising array of restaurants for such a small town because we're the state capital of Montpelier and Vermont College is right up the hill. So, you know, it's five minute drive or a 40 minute walk. Wow. <laughs> and even if, I didn't have local friends, which I do. All of my friends come every six months and, you know, we have residency and it's really great. And like it's a so there's all of these opportunities through the college to continue to build that writing community, to connect, to socialize and do all this stuff. And so, you know, honestly, <laughs> the rest of the time, I am happy to be sitting on a mountainside and writing my stories. <laughs> I like doing it in a pretty place and I like that I can have a house instead of a, a studio. Yes, a walk up studio. <laughs> Yeah. With ambulances <laughs> flying by every 30 seconds. Yeah. So for me, for me, I mean, and I did live in New York for 12 years and I wouldn't undo that experience. I feel like it was really important to me in a lot of different ways, but I have a much better relationship with New York City as a visitor. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I see. I, I can understand. I can afford to go to see a show when I'm in town and I can take taxis and I can, you know, I really sort of feel like I appreciate the things that the city has to offer. Whereas when I lived there, I just, I was like holed up in my apartment 24 seven, frantically trying to churn out pages so that I could sell something so that I could pay my rent. So I felt like I, the romance of the starving artist in, you know, Manhattan or, you know, New York in general just didn't really come true for me. Like I wasn't enjoying all these free events and, you know, soaking in culture and making wonderful friends. I mean, I did make wonderful friends, but like, I don't know, the, I feel like movies and even books can paint this sort of romantic picture of, um, you know, what it's like to be an artist in a city and I for me those things just weren't true and so I feel like I can do the work that I need to do better in a different place and yeah it's a quiet predominantly white place but you know I also grew up in a quiet predominantly white <laughs> feels familiar but different enough from that environment I feel you know I feel comfortable here and, and happy to be here and you know that I still get to go places so you know it's for me the best of all worlds you know I get to go all over the place and come home to Vermont. I love just talking about the home spaces and what it's like and because my girlfriend and I we do a bit of traveling as well so it's it's always nice when you actually love where you go home to let's just say because we've definitely been in situations where we're like eh We'd rather just keep <laughs> traveling and not want to go home. So yeah. yeah, no, that's really awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And also, I would really love to talk about challenges, the most challenging time that you have ever come across. All these experiences make us who we are as storytellers. It just humanizes us. And and how you got out of that situation, how you're able to either pull yourself up from the bootstraps or find the support that you needed to get you through a really tough time. If there's any specific memory that you can share. I mean, I think part of what I've learned about, you know, writing in general, working in the publishing industry as a writer, all of that, it's just sort of challenge after challenge <laughs> in mm -hmm. many respects. And that what I feel like I've gained 
over time is not sort of an ability to avoid those challenges, but like just more flexibility and more compassion for myself in dealing with them. Mm-hmm. There, I have had to pull a book contract. I have had to change a manuscript entirely from what I thought it was going to be to be something different, you know, and in the moment, those things feel like a massive setback. I have you know, been told that this, you know, the thing I wrote is actually no good in in a way that was not helpful. Like, you know, like there's all these kinds of blows that, that come Mm. in the course of writing and just the sort of everyday struggles of like, how do I tell this story in the best way? And am I doing the right thing? Like, what what am I doing with my life? Like all of those just sort of existential (laughs) struggles, right? It's just this constant thing. It's interesting because I think about, you know, every book, that I have written, you know, there's been a moment in that book where I'm just like, this is impossible. I will never do it. I am failing. Everything is terrible like that, you know? And then, you know, like three years later, when I'm trying to talk about that, oh, that book wasn't so bad to write. (laughs) And my friends will be like, "Uh, you don't remember that time when you were crying on my floor? Like, you don't remember that part of that process? You just blacked that out, have you? (laughs) And I'm like, oh, right. Yeah, it was. Because when I do feel like I'm like up against a wall in one way or another, like, or all hope is lost and everything is desperate, right? Like, that that those feelings that do come, I just have to sort of remind myself that, oh, no, like you have successfully published 12 novels, like the one that came before it also had this moment, the one that came before that also had this moment, (laughs) like these moments will pass. So I don't know that I always had that ability. I feel like I have gotten better at moving through moments of frustration and moments of trauma and moments of negative feedback and all of that. Like, I feel like I've gotten better at moving through them simply because I've had so many, (laughs) you know, so in vice form, I think the challenge of it is it's one of those things that I never liked to hear when I was younger, which is that like, well, when you have experience, you will understand blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, like there are certain things that do come from learning, but I think that the important thing when you're new or when you haven't had a lot of frustrations and challenges, when you're you're experiencing that for the first time, the thing to know is just that it is part of the process. Like there is no way to do the kind of creative work that we do. I say this, you know, as if I'm speaking to other writers, there's no way to do the kind of work that we do without confronting those kinds of challenges and that it's actually part of the work to be able to struggle through that however long it takes and to come out on the other side and to know that you can come out on the other side, even though there will be times when it feels like, you know, all, all is failing, but there is no problem or challenge that is insurmountable. If you just keep going and you keep attacking it in one way or another, like even if you don't always do the right thing in confronting it, if you don't always do the right thing in revision, if you don't always do the right thing in conversation with an editor or an agent or whatever it is, nothing is insurmountable. You just have to keep going and keep going and keep going. The only thing that will stop you is if you actually just decide to stop. You can't keep going. There will be obstacles. It will take time. There will be setbacks. It will feel like the world is ending. It will feel like your career is ending. Like There are going to be those kinds of moments. But the only thing that can stop you is you. (laughs) Because there's always another way. There's always another revision. There's always another chance. There's always another editor, right? Like there's sort of endless possibilities. And for me, sometimes the endlessness of the possibilities is part of what can be paralyzing is the sense that I could do anything with the story. It is a blank page. I can do anything. Mm -hmm. So in the end, you just have to do something 
because you could always change it. You could always fix it. You could always try something else. Mm, my gosh, Kekla, that was so good. You just, I, you gave me <laughs> chills and I'm like, I know it's not the New York breeze right now going through my kitchen, okay? <laughs> I know it's your words of wisdom. Oh man, and I have a sweater on. I just seriously got all the goosebumps. Woo! Woo! Thank you so much for that. Oh my gosh, that was so inspiring. There's so, like I mentioned earlier, we do a lot of chatting, our community over in our private Facebook group. And, you know, just seeing how so many people feel like they want to throw in the towel. They don't know if they should continue pursuing what they're pursuing. They're exhausted from juggling their day job, their kids, everything to try and give this dream of theirs a shot. So your words really are so powerful. So thank you so much for that. And I especially know it will resonate with those who have spoken up recently about how tough it's been. And in regards to craft writing tips, if you have any advice on that that you can share that you feel like has been the key thing that you've noticed is a pattern with most writers that you've come across, or even yourself, your own work, and you would love for more writers to be aware of or to look out for in their own writings that could help them. I would so appreciate that. Since I was on the, the theme of the only thing that can stop you is you, I mean, one of the craft reminders that I give people is just, is just simply that nobody writes a novel in one sitting or any really any kind of anything in one sitting. It's always going to be piece by piece. It's always going to be a little bit at a time. And so for me, one of the biggest obstacles is just my own feeling that I'm not doing enough at any given time. I just wrote that paragraph today. That's all I wrote. Like, that's not enough. Oh, I just wrote a page today. That's not enough. Like, you know, et cetera. If you just write a page a day, double spaced, <laughs> you can have a novel draft within a year, you know, sort of reminding myself that I have to keep writing, even if it's only a little bit, you know, if, if all you can do because you have too many other obligations is like write on a post-it note by the stove while you're stirring the turkey meat. <laughs> yes, I love that. That's all you can do. If all you can do is write up one post-it a day you will still have something meaningful at the end of a month. You will still have something meaningful at the end of a year. So for me, the craft, that doesn't really sound like craft advice, but it is just like you have to write a little bit anytime you can, even if it's only a little bit, because it never feels like enough. It never feels like enough. In terms of other craft, one of the things I explore a lot is point of view, because I've done a couple of multiple viewpoint novels, how it went down and lighted up or two companion novels, and I have like 15 or 18 different characters offering a first person viewpoint. And so I've done a lot of work around, you know, how do you really ground yourself <laughs> in a first person viewpoint? And so I do a lot of work with my students around point of view and how do you really like sort of ground yourself in a character. One of the exercises I give them is to try moving through the world like your character, like walking, having posture like your character, trying to really embody that person in the world. Because the thing with perspective or point of view is that it will color everything about the story. It will color how they describe everything in the room. It will color what they're looking at and what their attention is drawn to. If they're describing a landscape, you know, somebody who loves animals is going to look and see all the birds. Somebody who loves trees is going to look and see all the trees. Somebody who <laughs> is afraid of the woods is going to see nothing but fear. <laughs> right. Mm. Like, so like I'm, I'm describing woods because I'm looking at the woods out my back. <laughs> But the idea that your character, if you're writing, whether you're writing from first person or close third, the idea that your character is seeing everything 
is one of the biggest things I try to get my students to focus on in revision, not writing from the perspective of the author, looking from like a camera bird's eye view on high about what, what, what empirically is going on, but getting in the head of your character and actually looking at the landscape, looking at the situation, looking at everything they see and hear and perceive through their perspective and how that would be colored. It can change a whole scene. It can change a whole book. Let's wrap it up with what is your favorite book or a craft book, novel, any, or even TV show or movie that you can recommend to our listeners to check out as resources to help guide them in their storytelling journey? Lately, I've been really interested in Lisa Crone's Story Genius. Mm -hmm. It's a really good craft book. I use the Plot Whisperer sometimes, Martha Alderson's Plot Whisperer, because I've been studying graphic form, but also just for thinking about story. Scott McCloud has craft books. I think one of them is called Understanding Comics. I think that's the one that I tend to look at that just breaks down graphic novel form really clearly, but it also is really helpful if even if you're not a graphic novel writer or reader, it's like a really useful way of breaking down scenes and breaking down kind of like how you might build setting and stuff like that. So it's one that might not come to mind for a lot of prose writers, but is really interesting. Ooh, okay. And you see that Scott McCloud has a couple of titles? Yeah, I think it's Understanding Comics is one and Making Comics is the other. Thank you so much for those resources. Those will be listed in your show notes page. Please tell everyone where they can find you on social media. I am on Twitter at Tekla Magoon, K-E-K-L-A-M-A-G-O-O-N. And I have a website, which is www.keklamagoon.com. And again, it's K-E-K-L-A-M-A-G-O-O-N. All right, storytellers, that wraps up my conversation with Kekla Magoon. Kekla, thank you for this eye-opening and motivating conversation that our listeners will learn so much from. I so enjoyed our conversation. Storytellers, thank you for hanging out and listening in as always. Please be sure to stop by and say hi to Kekla on Twitter at Kekla Magoon. To download her writing prompt and to find all the resources and books mentioned in her episode, along with tweetable quotes and the timestamps of highlights throughout our entire conversation, head on over to Kekla's show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash Kekla-Magoon. I'm so proud to share that we collaborated with our friends at Vermont College of Fine Arts, MFA in Writing for Children and Young Adults to curate a thoughtful series of personal essays and podcast episodes, just like today's episode, so that you can feel empowered about your writing journey. Vermont College of Fine Arts is a global community of artists continuously redefining what it means to be an arts college. They're accredited by the New England Commission on Higher Education and offers a Master of Fine Arts degree in a variety of fields, including writing, writing for children and young adults, and writing and publishing, along with an international MFA in creative writing and literary translation. With low residency and fully residential options, VCFA has a graduate program to fit your needs. You can learn more at vcfa.edu. For our specially curated series of essays and podcast episodes I was mentioning all the way up at the top, we made sure to share intimate stories about the life of a writer exploring the art and the heart of writing and throw in some really incredible step-by-step articles to improve your writing craft. These stories will guide and uplift 
every single storyteller in our community, and they've already been resonating deeply with so many of our listeners and readers. So if you haven't had the chance to check out our series yet, be sure to head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash category slash VCFA. And once again, that's 88cupsoftea.com slash category slash VCFA. Have a super productive week and I'll catch you not next Thursday, but the one after that.